0: Chapter Eleven of the Jesuits in North America. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Jesuits in North America in the Seventeenth Century by Francis Parkman. Chapter Eleven. Sixteen thirty eight to sixteen forty. Priest and Pagan. We have already touched on the domestic life of the Jesuits. That we may the better know them, we will follow one of their number on his journey towards the scene of his labours, and observe what awaited him on his arrival. Father François Pou Perron came up from Ottawa in a Huron canoe in September 1638, and was well treated by the Indian owner of the vessel. Lalmont and Moyne, who had set out from three rivers before him, did not fare so well. The former was assailed by an Algonquin of Alumet Island, who tried to strangle him in revenge for the death of a child, which a Frenchman in the employ of the Jesuits had lately bled, but had failed to restore to health by the operation. Le Moyne was abandoned by his Huron conductors, and remained for a fortnight by the bank of the river, with a French attendant who supported him by hunting. Another Huron, belonging to the flotilla that carried Duperron then took him into his canoe, but, becoming tired of him, was about to leave him on a rock in the river, when his brother-priest bribed the savage with a blanket to carry him to his journey's end. It was midnight, on the twenty-ninth of September, when Duperon landed on the shore of Thunder Bay, after paddling without rest since one o'clock of the preceding morning. The night was rainy, and Asasane was about fifteen miles distant. His Indian companions were impatient to reach their towns. The rain prevented the kindling of a fire, while the priest, who for a long time had not heard mass, was eager to renew his communion as soon as possible. Hence, tired and hungry as he was, he shouldered his sack and took the path for Asasane without breaking his fast. He toiled on, half-spent, amid the ceaseless pattering, trickling, and whispering of innumerable drops among innumerable leaves, till as day dawned he reached a clearing, and descried through the mist a cluster of Huron houses. Faint and bedrenched, he entered the principal one and was greeted with the monosyllable CHE, "'Welcome.' A squaw spread a mat for him by the fire, roasted four ears of Indian corn before the coals, baked two squashes in the embers, ladled from her kettle a dish of sagamite, and offered them to her famished guest. Missionaries seemed to have been a novelty at this place, for while the father breakfasted, a crowd, chiefly of children, gathered about him, and stared at him in silence. One examined the texture of his cassock, another put on his hat, a third took the shoes from his feet, and tried them on her own. Duperron requited his entertainers with a few trinkets, and begged by signs a guide to Osasane. An Indian accordingly set out with him, and conducted him to the mission-house, which he reached at six o'clock in the evening. Here he found a warm welcome and a little other refreshment. In respect to the commodities of life, the Jesuits were but a step in advance of the Indians— Their house, though well ventilated by numberless crevices in its bark walls, always smelt of smoke, and when the wind was in certain quarters, was filled with it to suffocation. At their meals the fathers sat on logs around the fire, over which their kettle was slung in the Indian fashion. Each had his wooden platter, which from the difficulty of transportation was valued in the Huron country at the price of a robe of beaver-skin, or a hundred francs. Their food consisted of sagamite, or mush, made of pounded Indian corn, boiled with scraps of smoked fish. Chaumonot compares it to the paste used for papering the walls of houses. The repast was occasionally varied by a pumpkin or squash baked in the ashes, or in the season by Indian corn roasted in the ear. They used no salt whatever. They could bring their cumbrous pictures, ornaments, and vestments through the savage journeys of the Ottawa, but they could not bring the common necessaries of life. By day they read and studied by the light that streamed in through the large smoke-holes in the roof, at night by the blaze of the fire. Their only candles were a few of wax, for the altar. They cultivated a patch of ground, but raised nothing on it except wheat for making the sacramental bread. Their food was supplied by the Indians, to whom they gave in return cloth, knives, awls, needles, and various trinkets, their supply of wine for the Eucharist was so scanty that they limited themselves to four or five drops for each Mass. Their life was regulated with a conventual strictness. At four in the morning a bell roused them from the sheets of bark on which they slept. Masses, private devotions, reading religious books, and breakfasting filled the time until eight, when they opened their door and admitted the Indians. As many of these proved intolerable nuisances, they took what Lealmont calls the honnête liberty, of turning out the most intrusive and impracticable, an act performed with all tact and courtesy, and rarely taken in dudgeon. Having thus winnowed their company, they catechized those that remained, as opportunity offered. In the intervals, the guests squatted by the fire and smoked their pipes. As among the Spartan virtues of the Hurons that of thieving was especially conspicuous, it was necessary that one or more of the fathers should remain on guard at the house all day. The rest went forth on their missionary labors, baptizing and instructing, as we have seen. To each priest who could speak Huron was assigned a certain number of houses, in some instances as many as forty, and as these often had five or six fires, with two families to each, his spiritual flock was as numerous as it was intractable. It was his care to see that none of the number died without baptism, and by every means in his power to commend the doctrines of his faith to the acceptance of those in health. At dinner, which was at two o'clock, grace was said in Huron, for the benefit of the Indians present, and a chapter of the Bible was read aloud during the meal. At four or five, according to the season, the Indians were dismissed, the door closed, and the evening spent in writing, reading, studying the language, devotion, and conversation on the affairs of the mission. The local missions here referred to embrace Asasane and the villages of the neighborhood, but the priests by no means confined themselves within these limits. They made distant excursions, two in company, until every house in every Huron town had heard the annunciation of the new doctrine. On these journeys they carried blankets or large mantles at their backs, for sleeping in at night, besides a supply of needles, awls, beads, and other small articles, to pay for their lodging and entertainment. For the Hurons, hospitable without stint to each other, expected full compensation from the Jesuits. At Ossassonne the house of the Jesuits no longer served the double purpose of dwelling and chapel. In 1638 they had in their pay twelve artisans and labourers sent up from Quebec. Hither they removed their pictures and ornaments, and here, in winter, several fires were kept burning, for the comfort of the half-naked converts. Of these they now had at Ossassonne about sixty, a large, though evidently not a very solid nucleus for the Huron church, and they laboured hard and anxiously to confirm and multiply them. Of a Sunday morning in winter, one could have seen them coming to Mass, often from a considerable distance. As naked, says Laumont, as your hand, except a skin over their backs like a mantle, and in the coldest weather, a few skins around their feet and legs. They knelt, mingled with the French mechanics, before the altar, very awkwardly at first, for the posture was new to them, and all received the sacrament together, a spectacle which, as the missionary chronicler declares, repaid a hundred times all the labor of their conversion. Some of the principal methods of conversion are curiously illustrated in a letter written by Garnier to a friend in France. Send me, he says, a picture of Christ without a beard. Several virgins are also requested, together with a variety of souls in perdition, ames Damni, most of them to be mounted in a portable form. Particular direction are given with respect to the demons, dragons, flames, and other essentials of these works of art. Of souls in bliss, ames benheureuses he thinks that one will be enough. All the pictures must be in full face, not in profile, and they must look directly at the beholder with open eyes. The colors should be bright, and there must be no flowers or animals, as these distract the attention of the Indians." THE FIRST POINT WITH THE PRIESTS WAS, OF COURSE, TO BRING THE OBJECTS OF THEIR ZEAL TO AN ACCEPTANCE OF THE FUNDAMENTAL DOCTRINES OF THE ROMAN CHURCH. BUT AS THE MIND OF THE SAVAGE WAS BY NO MEANS THAT BEAUTIFUL BLANK WHICH SOME HAVE REPRESENTED IT, THERE WAS MUCH TO BE ERASED AS WELL AS TO BE WRITTEN. THEY MUST RENOUNCE A HOST OF SUPERSTITIONS, TO WHICH THEY WERE ATTACHED WITH A STRANGE TENACITY, OR WHICH MAY RATHER BE SAID TO HAVE BEEN INGRAINED IN THEIR VERY NATURES. CERTAIN POINTS OF CHRISTIAN MORALITY WERE ALSO STRONGLY URGED BY THE MISSIONARIES who insisted that the convert should take but one wife and not cast her off without grave cause and that he should renounce the gross license almost universal among the hurons murder cannibalism and several other offences were also forbidden yet while labouring at the work of conversion with an energy never surpassed and battling against the powers of darkness with the metal of paladins the jesuits never had the folly to assume towards the indians a dictatorial or overbearing tone gentleness Kindness and patience were the rule of their intercourse. They studied the nature of the savage, and conformed themselves to it with an admirable tact. Far from treating the Indian as an alien and barbarian, they would fain have adopted him as a countryman, and they proposed to the Hurons that a number of young Frenchmen should settle among them, and marry their daughters in solemn form. The listeners were gratified at an overture so flattering. "'But what is the use,' they demanded, "'of so much ceremony?' If the Frenchmen want our women, they are welcome to come and take them whenever they please, as they always used to do. The Fathers are well agreed that their difficulties did not arise from any natural defect of understanding on the part of the Indians, who, according to Chamonix, were more intelligent than the French peasantry, and who in some instances showed their way with a marked capacity. It was the inert mass of pride, sensuality, indolence, and superstition that opposed the march of the faith and in which the devil lay entrenched as behind impregnable breastworks. It soon became evident that it was easier to make a convert than to keep him. Many of the Indians clung to the idea that baptism was a safeguard against pestilence and misfortune, and when the fallacy of this notion was made apparent, their zeal cooled. Their only amusements consisted of feasts, dances, and games, many of which were, to a greater or less degree, of a superstitious character, And as the fathers could rarely prove to their own satisfaction the absence of the diabolic element in any one of them, they prescribed the whole indiscriminately, to the extreme disgust of the neophyte. His countrymen, too, beset him with dismal prognostics, as, You will kill no more game, all your hair will come out before the spring, and so forth. Various doubts also assailed him with regard to the substantial advantages of his new profession and several converts were filled with anxiety in view of the probable want of tobacco in heaven, saying that they could not do without it. Nor was it pleasant to these incipient Christians, as they sat in class listening to the instructions of their teacher, to find themselves and him suddenly made the targets of a shower of sticks, snowballs, corn-cobs, and other rubbish, flung at them by a screeching rabble of vagabond boys. Yet while most of the neophytes demanded an anxious and diligent cultivation, there were a few of excellent promise, and of one or two especially, the fathers, in the fulness of their satisfaction, assure us again and again that they were savage only in name. As the town of Ejonateria, where the Jesuits had made their first abode, was ruined by the pestilence, the mission established there, and known by the name of St. Joseph, was removed in the summer of 1638 to Teonaste, a large town at the foot of a range of hills near the southern borders of the Huron Territory. The Hurons, this year, had had unwanted success in their war with the Iroquois, and had taken, at various times, nearly a hundred prisoners. Many of these were brought to the seat of the new mission of St. Joseph, and put to death with frightful tortures, though not before several had been converted and baptized. The torture was followed, in spite of the remonstrances of the priests, by those cannibal feasts customary with the Hurons on such occasions." Once, when the fathers had been strenuous in their denunciations, a hand of the victim, duly prepared, was flung in at their door, as an invitation to join in the festivity. As the owner of the severed member had been baptized, they dug a hole in their chapel, and buried it with solemn rites of sepulchre. End of chapter 11